Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Last time on the service. Why would you try and spy in Washington and Whitehall, where everyone's following you, when you come to Wellington where no one gave a rat's hat? On the reverse side of the letter, there would be important instructions from me printed in secret ink. When you say that you have a dim recollection that there was an operation involving the Czechoslovakian embassy, do you recall it being a successful operation? <laughs> no, you're pressing me on this one, Guy, and harder than, uh, uh, than I can go. I've really said all I can on this one. From RNZ and Bird of Paradise Productions, this is The Service. The Soviet Union was extremely active in New Zealand. A five-part podcast about New Zealand's SIS. All of us lived in the shadows all that time, you know, in the wilderness of mirrors. And its role in the Cold War. I do recall very much the heated times of the nuclear arms race. I'm John Daniel. And I'm Guy in Espinette. This is a story about espionage. These documents were fed out of the State Department by communists. And global political strategy. If we falter in our leadership, we may endanger the peace of the world. Across those decades when the West lined up against the Warsaw Pact countries. It's also a story about individual lives. I was sent out with this hideous plastic handbag. You wouldn't have ever chased for yourself with a camera in it. Secrets. He was just the last person to be a traitor. And trust. He bumped round on the boot of a car, sweating terribly, and so long he finally concluded he must have been betrayed. And the echoes from it still resonate right up to the present day. The biggest TV shows were Dynasty, Dallas and The Cosby Show. The biggest album was Michael Jackson's Thriller. And the biggest worry was that the world could end in nuclear war with Russia. I've signed legislation that will outlaw Russia forever. We begin (laughs) bombing in five minutes. That was US President Ronald Reagan testing the mic in an off-air quip that was leaked to the media and caused the Soviets to go on high alert in 1984. It was an off-coloured joke, but his actual speeches could be just as alarming. Here he is in 1983. Let us be aware that while they preach the supremacy of the state, declare its omnipotence over individual man and predict its eventual domination of all peoples on the earth, They are the focus of evil in the modern world. And amidst the rhetoric, a war game nearly started World War III. It was a military exercise named Able Archer. Oblivious to the world outside, in November that year, high-ranking NATO officers descended into a nuclear vault in Belgium. They had come from across Europe and North America to take part in an annual communications exercise called Able Archer. This is from a 2008 Channel 4 documentary called Brink of Apocalypse. The US simulated a move to DEFCON 1 and airlifted nearly 20,000 troops to Europe. The Russians, worried that the drill was cover for the real thing, prepared their arsenal. Unseen by watching American satellites, over 300 intercontinental ballistic missiles prepared for a massive retaliatory strike. Every event of 1983 had led up to this moment. And then, quite suddenly, the exercise ended. The Russians held their nerve. The world had dodged a bullet. 
rather a missile. If you think back to the 80s, there was a real prospect people felt that there might be nuclear war. That's former Labour Prime Minister Helen Clark. There were crazy books coming out during the, uh, the Reagan era in the US uh, by people who believed that with enough shovels you could dig enough uh, nuclear shelters to preserve yourself if the worst happened and the, the bomb went off. So that, that was the, the context. There was a heightened sense of risk as that doomsday clock you know, moved closer to, to midnight. In 1984, David Longy's Labour government was given a mandate to go nuclear-free. Rejecting nuclear weapons is to assert what is human over the evil nature of the weapon. It is to restore to humanity the power of decision. This is part of Longy's famous speech at the Oxford Union debate in 1985. New Zealand banned nuclear-armed and powered ships from its ports, leading to a major row with the US. In 1986, America suspended its obligations to New Zealand under the ANZUS Security Treaty. According to the Americans, we were now friends rather than allies. Nuclear weapons are morally indefensible, and I support that proposition. It's a defining moment in New Zealand history, isn't it? It is, and it puts New Zealand right at the heart of world affairs. Helen Clark sees it as the beginning of an independent foreign policy. From this distance, what, nearly 30 years or so after the end of the Cold War, it's become so established as a part of New Zealand's national identity, it's almost like the air we breathe. But it meant an awful lot, too, to the big powers at the time. Yeah, America was furious about what they saw as a betrayal, and according to a KGB defector, Moscow was jubilant about Labour's election. With the nuclear-free policy, they thought here is a chance to weaken the Five Eyes. Which goes some way to explaining why the KGB was so interested in New Zealand at the time. Yeah, and that threat of nuclear war explains why those Warsaw Pact codes could have been such a prize. They can help you understand what the other lot are thinking. High stakes all round. At the time I was involved in this, the Soviet Union, in its dying days, was extremely active in, in New Zealand and trying to penetrate our systems. David Longy's deputy, Geoffrey Palmer, had to deal with the fallout. There was something of a, a blitz of it, uh, as far as I could see, uh, and, and um, we had a lot of problems with that. And what were they up to? I mean, they were funding parties or funding the... Well, NCAA. they were doing all sorts of things and they were trying to get hold of people who were uh, sometimes members of the government, sometimes supporters of it, sometimes influential people in other areas. Uh, and, and they had a sort of full court press going, as far as I could see. My memory of it is fairly distinct, but it's very limited in the sense that most of this doesn't get to the minister. It's just the warrants that do. <laughs> Would it be fair to say that many of the warrants were to do with uh, signing off interception warrants regarding Russian activity in New Zealand at that point? Yes, it would be. It, uh, that's my memory of it. I have to be very careful here, you know. I can't breach confidential information. Geoffrey Palmer was Deputy Prime Minister in 1984 and would eventually become Prime Minister at the end of the decade. We spoke to him in his office at the Law School in Wellington. Through much of his time in government, he was also Attorney General, so he signed the warrants allowing the SIS to legally conduct surveillance. He says those decisions were some of the hardest he ever had to make. In terms of the Soviet activity here at that time, you, you told me earlier that, that that would have been the majority of the interception warrants. Yeah. You, did you, you felt comfortable about, about doing that? No, I didn't feel comfortable about it. <laughs> I mean, the Soviet Union was spying on the Labour Party. Spying on the Labour Party? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, it was trying to 
get information out of them, cultivate them and go and do all sorts of things. I mean, that's why it was so painful. Was it successful? No, it wasn't. <laughs> but it was, a, there were big efforts made. In your time in government? Yes. And that's the kinds of things you were signing off on? Yes. What can you tell us about that four Nothing. years later? Nothing. <laughs> Bang, that brick wall of secrecy again. Even from someone who thinks the wall should be torn down. The warrants that you signed off against um, Russian operatives in New Zealand, is it fair for those sorts of things to remain secret now? Is there a need to? I wouldn't have thought so. That's why I think the protective security requirements should be revised so that they actually follow what they say about declassification. The records should become available to historians and others after a lapse of time. I mean, otherwise, how are we going to know what we were doing and why? Sir Geoffrey, we share your frustration. <laughs> there is a long list of people refusing to talk to us. The SIS had indicated that the Director-General, Rebecca Kitteridge, she's the number one, would be interviewed, but then they pulled out after months of negotiations. It does make it hard to put a jigsaw together when you don't have all the pieces. But former SIS agent Kit Bennett did speak on the record. And what did he make of a KGB trying to infiltrate the Labour Party? Were they successful? I think they were successful to some degree. Um, But there were also some fine men and women in the Labour Party who would have no part of any of that. And um, so we would often hear about it. We'd often hear about it. And these people would sometimes put their, in those days, put their political careers on the line. Because if it was found out that they were talking to the security service, there were many people that held the view that we were the thought police and that we were, you know, uh, that we were the baddies. Um, so that could affect them. So, But many of these people did the right thing. They picked up, they were very intelligent, they picked up what was happening and they would, they would let us know. Is that right? So MPs in the Labour Party would contact the service and say, hey, look, I've had an approach? Yes. Yes, they would. We would handle it. It would be handled very delicately and very carefully. But but and I was certainly involved in, in some of those, and and I had great admiration for those for those men and women for doing that. So there was some success, though. You see, th- there's the difficulty. You'll remember the Matrucan archive. Inside it, there's a code name for a Labour MP who was a KGB informant. They used the code name Gerd. Supposedly, he was on the Labour Party's executive committee, but no one can prove exactly who it was. As far as we know, Gerd slipped through the net. We knew some of the people they did speak to, but there were some, the ones that didn't come forward, we don't know about. That was the problem. Correct. (laughs) That was the worry. Gerd being one of them, yes, didn't come forward, so we didn't know. So we don't know how successful they were. Were they frog-kissing? What does that mean? You know, keep kissing a frog until you get a handsome prince. So you just keep pitching people until they, until someone says yes. And they, the, the, the Soviets did that. For an insider's take on what the Russians were doing and why, we spoke to former Soviet diplomat Ruben Azizian. New Zealand was seen by uh, Soviet Union as a country that was um, robust enough to stand up against, I mean, look at the 80s, anti-nuke, that was, uh, maybe there was an overreaction in the Soviet Union, but that was seen as, oh, look, you know, New Zealand is, you know, falling out of the Western orbit. So we need to nourish, we need to nurture countries like that. Ruben Azizian is now the director of the Centre for Defence and Security Studies at Massey University. He was the deputy Russian ambassador from 1991, but he first came to New Zealand in 1989 as an official in the Soviet Foreign Ministry. As the 80s drew to a close, the Russians were wrestling with the failing dream of a communist utopia. Azizian was sent to represent the Soviets at an Otago foreign policy conference comparing the economic reforms of Mikhail Gorbachev and the free market policies in New Zealand called Rogernomics. I was um, an official in the Soviet Foreign Ministry, not not a very senior one actually. So I I'm, I still remember my boss who decided to send me as far as Dunedin. You you're sitting in Moscow and you're looking at the map, and my first reaction was, 
what have I done wrong? Why are you sending me to Dunedin? It's almost Antarctica there. We said, look, you, you'll enjoy it, as I did. But then my full-time job in New Zealand started in 91, where, where I uh, applied for a job at the embassy, the number two position, and uh, it was very competitive, uh, but I got the job. He got the job, but not necessarily all the information. If our intelligence services have a culture of secrecy, they're not alone. Even as the number two at the embassy, he wasn't told which members of the embassy staff were KGB. No one ever, even at the deputy ambassador level, told me who works for each agency. And if you were to blow the cover, if you figured out who was who and told someone, you know, this guy is a KGB or something else, you'd be, you'd be tried for treason. Why had they been interested in New Zealand, do you think, the KGB? Well, I think, uh, you know, New Zealand being a Western country, um, the Cold War was about, you know, the confrontation between East and the West. Um, The other reason perhaps was uh, that New Zealand was also seen as a as a country that was uh, uh, more pragmatic than other countries. It's Western, but it's not really, you know, too ideological about being Western. It's also pragmatic or some call it the weaker link of the Western world. The weaker link of the Western world. That's another way of viewing an independent foreign policy. But was all this activity just opportunism? Or was there a greater Soviet strategy at work? Either way, you can see why the Russians might have got their hopes up. When New Zealand went nuclear-free, America started to freeze us out of ANZUS, and questions were asked about our place in Five Eyes. US President Ronald Reagan was not happy. We consider that close and comprehensive interaction among ANZUS members on political, economic and defence matters is central to the continued effectiveness of the ANZUS alliance. We deeply regret the decision by the New Zealand government to deny port access to our ships. We consider New Zealand a friend. It's our deepest hope that New Zealand will restore the traditional cooperation that has existed between our two countries. The Russians saw the squabble as an opportunity. I don't think they could quite believe their luck. Uh, This was for them one of those foreign policy gifts that drop into your basket from time to time, unsought and unexpected. Here's Gerald Hensley, who we met in the previous episode. He was head of the Prime Minister's Department and then oversaw the New Zealand intelligence community in the mid-1980s. The Russians were not, I think, all that concerned uh, with New Zealand as such. But they were concerned. Their main aim in the Pacific was to detach Japan from the American alliance. And although New Zealand wouldn't make all that much difference, uh, if they were... If New Zealand detached itself from the American alliance, they thought this might be a you know, welcome first step. It might bring the Australians down next. And before they knew where they were, they'd find that the Pacific had rearranged itself to their advantage. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's an echo of US President Dwight Eisenhower's domino theory from the 1950s. You have a row of dominoes set up and you knock over the first one and... Uh, what will happen to the last one is that certainly it'll go over uh, very quickly. In the 1980s, the Soviets were hoping pragmatic New Zealand might be that first domino. It was to a large extent, I think, dreaming. But then who would have thought that the fight would have, the quarrel would have turned up in the first place? So they certainly weighed in. Earlier, we mentioned a former KGB colonel who said Moscow was jubilant about Longy's Nuclear Free Labour Party winning that 1984 election and the cracks that opened up in the Western Alliance. His name was Oleg Gordievsky. He was probably the biggest defector of the Cold War and the most important source of intelligence for the West. Gordievsky became disillusioned with the Soviet Union after they invaded Czechoslovakia in 1968. That's the so-called Prague Spring. He ended up as a double agent. The Russians thought he was working for them as a KGB officer at the Russian Embassy in London. But in fact, he was working for Britain's MI6. And remember the international drama over the Abel Archer war game we talked about at the start of this episode? Well, Gordievsky was a central player in that story. In fact, he's a central character in a Smithsonian Channel documentary called 
the man who saved the world. From the KGB station in central London, Gordievsky witnesses the ramping up of tensions. Then he makes a move that many people believe single-handedly pulls the world back from the brink of nuclear annihilation. Gordievsky revealed to the West how seriously the situation was being viewed in Russia, and through his MI6 handlers, he prompted the Western powers to de-escalate. Now, Gordievsky was eventually betrayed by a CIA officer, Aldrich Ames, and called back to Russia in 1985. The KGB drugged him and interrogated him, and although he was under surveillance, he was able to activate an escape plan. MI6 agents in Moscow would check a bread shop at the same time each Tuesday. If Gordievsky was in trouble, he was to signal this by holding a Safeway supermarket bag. The MI6 officer would be holding a Mars bar. Now, incredibly, he was able to slip surveillance and make it to the designated spot. MI6 picked him up and spirited him into Finland in the boot of a car. The one, to me, most vivid moment of the escape which I got from uh, Oleg. This is Gerald Hensley again. He said that uh, you know, he bumped around in the boot of a car, sweating terribly and turning. And so long, he finally concluded he must have been betrayed. But then suddenly the car stopped and the boot in which he was in opened. And the sunlight streamed in and he said, I heard the most beautiful sound in my life. It was his um, British handler, a woman in her 50s, saying in her cut glass county accent, Oh, Oleg, how lovely to see you. <laughs> in 1986, Gordievsky did something of a world tour to Western countries and he was brought to New Zealand to debrief the government and the SIS on what the KGB were doing in this country. He came here on four separate occasions and would go on to write that the work he did here was particularly important. And while he was here, he went out for dinner with Mum and my stepdad Jim. It's interesting that the guy who was MI6's biggest coup. coup after the war was out here in New Zealand, not only meeting the Prime Minister, taking you and out for dinner. Yes. By the way, that bleeps because we're not using my stepdad's real name. We're calling him Jim. Well, that do be with him, keep him company, you know, for security occasionally and obviously they got on well together I think it was the first time I'd ever had a Japanese meal <laughs> I mean he was under sentence of death from the KGB did you know that he was under sentence of death when you were no I probably not it's kind of fascinating that MI6 have this you know the jewel in the crown of their counter espionage you know campaign is allowed out to dinner with you in Wellington, apparently unsupervised, while under That's sentence in, of death. Who knows? The Maybe Russian. there were people. I don't know. There could have been two or three posted at the restaurant to keep an eye on things. I would not know. So here is the biggest defector of the Cold War in New Zealand at a time when New Zealand is supposed to be on the outer in the Five Eyes because of the nuclear standoff. Well, we were interested in debriefing him. Everybody was. I mean, he worked uh, in the KGB department that covered Australia and New Zealand. I took David Longy to see him. His code name, or the code name for information which he provided through the British, was Ovation. And I told uh, David Longy this on the way, and uh, we came into the house, and uh, Oleg was sitting on a couch, and he stood up to greet the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister advanced upon him, saying, ah, a standing ovation, <laughs> and then looked around to see if we'd all got the joke. <laughs> the serious business, of course, was learning how the KGB operated in New Zealand. Uh, I asked Oleg, you know, what did you spend in New Zealand? He deflected my question. He said to me, you must remember, Gerald, that in the KGB, we know the left. We know the buttons to push. And I assume, he was telling me obliquely, we didn't spend all that much. We didn't have to. So let's just take a look back at this because there's quite a lot to take in. Geoffrey Palmer says there's a full court press from the Soviets in New Zealand. 
to the point where he's pretty uncomfortable about some of the surveillance he has to sign off on as far as his own party is concerned. Kit Bennett's confirms that MPs are being approached by the KGB and Ruben Azizian tells us we're the weak link of the West in the eyes of the Soviets. Gerald Hensley suggests that New Zealand was the thin end of the wedge and that Australia and Japan and the wider Pacific are the real targets. Oleg Gordievsky elaborates on the overall strategy in a series of interviews and books over the course of the next decade or so. And in his book, Next Stop Execution, published in 1995, he writes that... For years, New Zealand had been under massive propaganda and ideological attack from the KGB and the Central Committee. And the ruling Labour Party had seemed unaware of the extent to which the fabric of their society was being damaged by subversion. The Soviet aim was to have huge areas of the Southern Oceans declared nuclear-free and deny them to nuclear-powered warships of the US Navy. By reducing their sphere of operation as much as possible, Moscow would make it easier to keep them under control and destroy them in the first stage of any conflict. To help achieve that, the Soviets embarked on a campaign of subversion making what Gordievsky describes as tremendous efforts to penetrate and strengthen the Labour Party and the trade unions. This is what the Soviets called active measures, so political manipulation, disinformation, all aimed at sowing discord in the West and undermining America and its allies. Good evening, welcome to Checkpoint, I'm Kim Hill. Tonight, what's really behind David Longy's mysterious... We talked last episode about the expulsion of the Soviet ambassador Savinsky, and in 1987, New Zealand expelled another Soviet diplomat. Dirty tricks in the Pacific, they're a hot headline topic at the moment and were illustrated in New Zealand last week when Russian embassy staff member and KGB agent Sergei Budnik was expelled. This was the news on the evening of May the 1st. Like Safinsky before him, Budnik was caught trying to egg on those sympathetic to the Soviet cause. There's been a great deal of speculation about what Mr Budnik was up to, most of it centering around the Socialist Unity Party. None of it's been confirmed. But our diplomatic correspondent, Tim Birch, believes Budnik was involved in activities of a much more serious nature than merely giving support to the SUP. Activities involving recruitment of Soviet agents among islanders and young Maori activists. Budnik and his operators have been rather busy in among Maori activists in encouraging them to uh, accept funding, uh, the arrangement of visits to Libya and various um, activities in connection with the instruction in subversion and weapons training and so on. And the, um, this has indeed caused very serious concern. The Soviets appear to have been working with Libyan proxies to encourage indigenous peoples in their quest for land rights. Here's the political scientist Rod Alley talking in the same segment on RNZ's Checkpoint back in 1987. Well, I think there is a common link here, uh, the Maori question in New Zealand and whether or not uh, the Libyan issue and indeed some Soviet pressure on that has been, been involved. Uh, but also I think the way in which the Canucks in New Caledonia would find common cause with both Maoris in New Zealand and Aboriginals in Australia on that critical issue of land, which is unresolved. And if there's one common thread in throughout Melanesia, Australia and New Zealand which would uh, unite indigenous peoples, it would be grievances over land. So the point of this wasn't that the Soviets were huge fans of indigenous rights, but that they were using this to create social division. You can see an echo of this in the 2016 US election with Russia using its army of bots and trolls to hype up rhetoric around Black Lives Matter. At least one of the ads that was bought... Uh, by this Russian troll farm uh, on Facebook was a Black Lives Matter ad that was targeted specifically to the cities of Baltimore and Ferguson, Missouri, obviously two cities where by that point in either late 2015 or early 2016, two cities which been, had been the site of some of the largest and most violent protests over the police shootings of African American men. This is the first example we have... And of course, the Russians have also supported extreme right-wing groups, to the point that you heard chants like this from the white supremacists in Charlottesville. The South will rise again. Russia is our friend. The South will rise again. 
common theme here is the Russians jumping onto controversial issues, hyping them up to stir up social division and undermine democracy. And this is something Gerald Hensley says has been going on for a very long time. The Russians have, since the days of the Tsars, been leaders in security police. That's an un- unlovely distinction, but it's, they've always been the people that were there first with techniques and, and so on, and this has gone right through to the KGB. Uh, now, uh, under President Putin, yes, they're still innovating. Uh, the ideological side of things isn't so useful to them anymore, um, but the internet is enormously useful, and they, much earlier than anyone else, saw the potential for that and have used internet warfare with considerable skill, uh, as well as more clumsy Russian-type warfare like the Novichok poisonings in, in Salisbury. But those are sort of the bad old days. They're more sophisticated arrays of information bots and so on pouring out stuff on the internet anonymously, which is plausible. It's a bit like Gordievsky's comment to me, we know the buttons to push. And the Russians still very much do know the buttons to push. If the Soviets thought they could push our buttons on the nuclear issue and prize us out of the Five Eyes Alliance, they would have to tread carefully. They wanted to encourage New Zealand, nudge it. Nudge it in the direction it was already going rather than undermine it. Well, that's how Ruben Azizian sees it. Remember, he was the deputy Russian ambassador in New Zealand in those dying days of the Soviet Empire. I don't think New Zealand, in my opinion, was a country picked by Soviet Union to be undermined uh, per se, because there was hope in the Soviet mind that New Zealand was the lost case, that New Zealand was a, a strong enough country and independent in the Soviet definition of independence, that you really don't want to spoil your relations with New Zealand. Ruben Azizian argues that it wasn't just spying. The Soviets used influence across the board, looking to win hearts and minds in a sophisticated, subtle approach. There were two functions uh, in the Soviet intelligence service. One was, uh, of course, uh, get as much information as needed uh, uh, about adversaries, also sometimes about their own allies and partners who are not necessarily faithful. But the second function, which was actually um, not in my opinion, very welcomed by the intelligence, by KGB, was the ideological function, which is uh, KGB was used to fund uh, uh, left-wing parties, communist parties in the world. And that included New Zealand, we know uh, that. Yeah, I'm, 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 I have no doubt that New Zealand was one of the countries. And there was, uh, of course, the trade unions and all of that. So the Soviets were trying to influence New Zealand politics, but as Helen Clark reminds us, so was America. Jeffrey Palmer also told us that the KGB was trying to infiltrate the Labour Party, that they were spying on the Labour Party. It's directly what he said. Um, what are your thoughts about that? <laughs> I, I would think their capacity to do it would have been rather limited. <laughs> That's my gut feeling. But, but look, I, I think often in New Zealand we can be quite naive about great powers and the extent to which they'll go to to get information. I recall uh, when I was a young MP, it was quite common to find uh, uh, a particular attaché from the US embassy hanging around uh, the, the party nights and so on uh, in, in the New Zealand parliament. So I, I think... You know, one of the roles of embassies and those who operate under embassy cover is to cultivate people. And MPs, like others in positions of influence, need to have their eyes wide open about such relationships and and about the fact that conversations they have will be reported. Clark didn't make it into Cabinet when Labour was elected in 1984, but she was a key figure in the anti-nuclear movement. Well, take me back to that time. I think you chaired the Select Committee on the I Legislation. Mm. And you famously said that um, you had worries that the US was tapping your phone. <laughs> I probably did say it. <laughs> who knows whether they were? <laughs> on reflection? Oh, who knows? Mm. Who knows? I mean, what, what we know about the world now is that everything that's going out over <laughs> cyberspace is probably tapped by someone, so you stop worrying about it.
Under the worldview of Helen Clark and others on the left at that time, there were two sides on the nuclear issue. One side thought sticking close to the Western alliance was the safest option. The other wanted an independent New Zealand foreign policy. One was very aware of the SIS's origins in the, the Cold War. Uh, it was set up really to, to counter Soviet <laughs> uh, presence. And, you know, New Zealand at the time I was a student, the, the debate was about an independent foreign policy. It was about you know, why were we in the Vietnam War? You know, why did X, Y, Z uh, happen? And so, yes, in that context, the SIS would have been seen as really aligned with, with forces that were uh, obstructive, shall we say, to New Zealand having a more independent foreign policy. But in the end, strong leadership will you know, determine, I think, you know, more the, the general orientation of, of, of the agencies. I mean, they have to heed political expectations as, as well. They had to uh, deal with Norman Kirk. They had to deal with David Longy. They had to deal with Geoffrey Palmer long before they, they ever got to me. Just unpicking that last statement you made, it, it's quite striking, really. You seem to be saying that at that point, the service was captured in ways that were obstructive to New Zealand having an independent foreign policy? I, I, I think it had an identity of interest uh, with the <clears throat> other Anglophone powers, as it were, and wasn't really questioning. It, you know, if you think back to when I was a young backbencher and New Zealand had the ANZUS breach... This was seen by the Frank Corners and others of the day as the most disastrous thing that had ever happened in New Zealand foreign policy because their positioning of New Zealand had it deliberately close to the ear of the elephant, as it were. So who is this Frank Corner that Helen Clark's talking about who wanted to keep us close to America? Well, Corner was a former ambassador to the US who led a major defence review back in 1986. It argued in favour of the ANZUS Treaty, even while New Zealand was going nuclear-free. This was politically awkward for Labour, which was trying to downplay ANZUS to ensure popular support for its anti-nukes policy. The Corner report stressed the importance of staying in the club, while Labour, with MPs such as Helen Clark, was saying New Zealand would no longer be a second-class passenger in some global power grouping. Here was a government that came along and said, well, actually, we believe that, you know, we, that it's important not to be defended by nuclear weapons or justify them in any way. This was devastating in New Zealand foreign policy. And, uh, you know, a lot, a lot has happened since then, but I think that was a critical thing in New Zealand, putting that bit of distance uh, between itself and others in the Five Eyes relationship. Just how much distance there was between us and our Five Eyes partners became clear on July the 10th, 1985. Explosions rang out from the 40-metre ship at about midnight and the crew scrambled to get off the vessel to safety as she began going under. Rainbow Warrior didn't go to a warrior's death. She sank in her sleep just after midnight tied up at an Auckland wharf. One crew member was caught below decks and police recovered his body early this morning. Suspicion mounts that the sinking was an act of sabotage. If you think back to the bombing of, of the Rainbow Warrior, which, of course, you know, the SIS never picked up something was going on there because they were looking the other way, right? They were looking to the Russians, not to the French. Uh, and there was an agent sitting in, in Greenpeace in Auckland who was able to provide all the details that French intelligence uh, uh, needed. What happened in the Rainbow Warrior in Auckland Harbour when the Rainbow Warrior was bombed uh, by mines uh, set by French frogmen, uh, that, that actually was an act of war, uh, in, in, and wars have been fought over less than that. Obviously New Zealand's not in a position to uh, declare war on France, that would not be a sensible thing to do. New Zealand's allies were, however, in a position to support New Zealand. 
but they didn't. Even though it would be another year before America officially suspended its obligations to New Zealand under the ANZUS Treaty, they did not move a muscle, and nor did Margaret Thatcher's Britain. Both refused to condemn the French. The bombing of the Rainbow Warrior underlined our isolation from our historic allies and the lengths a major power was prepared to go to, protecting their nuclear arsenal. Ironically, that perceived lack of loyalty from our friends hardened the New Zealand public's determination to go it alone. The KGB couldn't have done better if they'd tried. So your stepdad, Jim, he would have been in the SIS at the time of the bombing of the Rainbow Warrior, wouldn't he? Yeah, and he had a tie with a little rainbow on it that he wore occasionally. <laughs> it was made specially for the team of cops and service members who worked on that case. So what did he do? What was Jim's role in the investigation? Well, he always downplayed it to me, but it turns out he was part of the team that bugged a motel where the French agents were staying, and the SIS was able to tell they weren't the married couple they pretended to be. When they called a Paris number linked to French intelligence, it was clear that they were dealing with the French agents. The SIS copped a lot of criticism for failing to detect the bombing of the Rainbow Warrior. Many felt it was looking in the wrong direction. While it was tracking the movements of the KGB in New Zealand, it was also heavily investigating those in the peace movement. In my last year at school, I joined the campaign, youth campaign for nuclear disarmament about a month before the Cuba Missile Crisis, which sort of when my parents were on sabbatical in New York, so they would have been targets. This is Richard Northey. From 1984 to 1990, and then again between 1993 and 1996, he was a Labour MP. He spent much of his life campaigning against nuclear weapons and racism. Gradually became the chair of the New Zealand Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, and um, so we were involved in a um, range of petitioning and lobbying and some direct action in the form of supporting vessels to go into the French nuclear testing zone, uh, actions like those, and, and I became chair of the Citizens Association for Racial Equality, which was campaigning for people to take direct action to stop supporting contacts with South Africa. In 2014, Richard Northey was curious to see whether the SIS ever spied on him, so he requested his SIS file. Now, anyone who thinks they may have come to the interest of the service can do this. It's actually one of the only ways to get information out of the SIS. When I got the file, it had been active until 1997. So in nine of those years, I was a member of parliament, and I don't think that somebody who gets sufficient democratic support to become a member of parliament should be subject to... Um, surveillance by the intelligence agency. So you were under surveillance while an MP? Yes, that's correct. There was an active file on me while I was an MP. From 1984 to 1993 to 1996, I was a Labour MP. And not only an MP, Northey was chair of the Justice and Law Reform Select Committee, which in Labour's second term in government was reviewing the very law governing the SIS. So while Richard Northey's job was to keep an eye on the SIS, in fact they were watching him. I think it's outrageous. A Member of Parliament, ipso facto I don't believe, can be considered subversive to the Government and Parliament of New Zealand when the people have said that they're justified in having that person in Parliament. You were a Government MP. Exactly. I was an establishment figure, if you like at that stage. Not in their eyes? Well, not entirely, not above suspicion, clearly. I'm pretty sure my phone wasn't tapped or anything like that. There's absolutely no record of anything coming from that source. It's just notes taken at meetings and conversations. But it is surveillance. Oh, yes, yeah. They were looking at where you were going meetings you were going to. Yeah, that's right. What I was advocating for, actions taken. Mm. Which suggests, obviously, that there was an undercover agent who was at those meetings to take those That's notes. right, absolutely, yep. 
Would you like an apology from the service for surveilling you while you were an MP? Yes. I strongly believe that um, it's just not possible um, and moral to, to believe that somebody who is elected to um, Parliament should be regarded as a threat to the democracy of New Zealand. That's just a total contradiction in terms, in my view. But it's not the only view. Remember, the SIS has very strong evidence to support the idea that Bill Such was working for the KGB, and he had gone right to the top of the civil service in New Zealand. He was close to ministers, prime ministers, and privy to sensitive information. And the profiles found in his office suggested others with left-wing sympathies were being targeted by the KGB. So you can see how a case would be made. And Richard Northey accepts some of the underlying reasoning. Those of us, particularly in the campaign for nuclear disarmament, anticipate that we'd detract the interests of the SIS because clearly um, advocating that, um, that New Zealand withdraw from any participation military participation and nuclear weapon strategy, uh, which we thought would probably imply the withdrawal from ANZUS, um, could reasonably be, could be seen by an agency like the SIS as being subversive and threatening to security. But Norvi objects to his work against racism being on file. I was concerned that it also um, reported on my activities in the um, Citizens Association for Racial Equality, which I can understand that an agency like the police would be concerned about because we were advocating direct action and sit-ins and the like um, against uh, visiting uh, South African sporting teams. But I don't believe that being more um, assertive about racial equality in New Zealand and overseas is a threat to New Zealand security. So I was concerned when I got the report that that had been a matter of interest to the SIS. And the interest of the SIS went further still. I recall um, being active in, in the peace movement, being approached by uh, a chap who was also less active but certainly involved in the peace movement that I knew asking me to join the Peace Council, which was generally, which is an active peace movement, but generally considered to be pretty aligned to the Soviet Union. And I declined to join for that reason, even though he was persuasive that it was a good organisation. And it was interesting in the SIS file to discover that approach had been made by a member of the SIS to me. So Richard Northey is approached by, well, he says a member of the SIS. I guess it could have been an informer rather than an agent, but in any case, someone reporting to the SIS to see if he's keen to join this Peace Council. It feels like entrapment, doesn't it? Although being a member of the Peace Council wouldn't have been illegal, so I'm not sure it reaches that bar but it does feel dark. As Richard Northey says, the Peace Council was Soviet-aligned. It was funded heavily from Moscow and more or less controlled by them as far as we can work out. It was obviously widely known in those circles, so I guess the SIS argument would have been if you're happy to join, then you're fair game. Yeah, so let's try to find a modern parallel. Say, there's an SIS informant inside, I don't know, a, a, a white supremacist organisation... As part of their cover, they're actively recruiting for that organisation. Now, there needs to be some judgement involved, but I think that's legit. I think you're delighted to have someone that far inside providing you with intelligence. Because, I mean, being responsible for national security, it is a hell of a burden. That's the whole question here, isn't it? What should these intelligence agencies be doing on our behalf? I mean, in a way, we're a long walk from the Czech embassy job and... In another way, we're, we're right there, really. How far should these agencies go? How does the context you're operating in justify your actions at the time? And how accountable are you to the public? Yeah, well, Richard Northey said he had trouble even getting basic information about how the service operates, and he was a government MP on a select committee with an oversight role. When I was an MP, uh, we had limited, some limited opportunity to question um, senior officials of the SIS about their activities. They uh, insisted that their 
appearance to be totally confidential. Um, they declined to answer a whole range of questions that MPs put to them because, you know, uncovering them could be a threat to national security, which were mainly about spending, well, which is a legitimate concern of Parliament. At, he says the other legitimate concern is the question, whose interests are the SIS serving? I got the clear impression that their allegiance was not so much to New Zealand, but to something they called the West, which is basically uh, the English-speaking, democratic, uh, white nations. Um, and, and surely, I think it was perfectly reasonable that um, for a country with New Zealand's diversity and location and... Uh, and history of progressive uh, innovation, our interests would not always align with the West. The West. We'll look at that club in detail next time. Does New Zealand leave its independent foreign policy at the door? Almost always be uh, several golf games involved. You play golf with the head of the NSA? Many times. Uh, and with the head of CIA and FBI. Who do our spies really work for? I remember doing things that the Americans wanted done uh, on one occasion. Uh, I don't think I can give the details of it, but it was quite important to them and uh, we facilitated it and uh, it was done. And once you're in the club, can you ever leave? Trying to get out of the five eyes is, uh, how can I put it, it's like trying to get out of the Mafia. That's next time on The Service. The Service is made by RNZ and Bird of Paradise Productions with support from New Zealand On Air. It's hosted and produced by Guy Espiner and me, John Daniel, with additional reporting by Robert Breston. Our sound engineers are Adrian Holai and Rangi Powak. Our producer is William Ray. Thanks to Nga Taonga for the archival audio and to Anthony Tonin for the original music throughout the series. The executive producers for RNZ are Tim Watkin and Veronica Schmidt. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to yeah. bring something like this to life. And yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend <laughs> that I don't right Hold now. it in. Hold on. And our current faves. And Luffy must have his due. <laughs> Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.